Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. the base, Lauren Badula and Hondo Gertz here with today's guest, Mr. Dana Deasy. We're so excited to have Dana join us because he's had incredible experience both in the private sector and public ser- sector, having most recently served as DOD Chief Information Officer. And, and prior to that role was global CIO of J.P. Morgan Chase, so managing a budget of more than $9 billion and over 40,000 technologists. So uh, I don't know anyone who knows um, CIO-related issues of massive organizations better than Dana. Um, He also was CIO at BP, um, Tyco International, spent time at Siemens America, and even Rockwell Space Systems. So we can hit on some defense industrial-based-related issues as well as get into um, career trajectory today. So Dana, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks, Lauren, for the kind introduction. So Dana, you know, one of the great joys of this show is, you know, guests like you who have these, you know, tremendously varied backgrounds. What kind of got you into the CIO business? What set you on the trajectory, you know, eventually leading to being the DOD CIO? Yeah, you know, I, um, when I started my career in technology, I don't even think the term chief information officer had even been created yet. I think the exotic term was IT director is what you aspired to be uh, back early on in my career. Um, I don't know. I was always challenged by scale complexity and I found myself always moving to the next job that seemed to have more scale and more complexity. It probably wasn't until the halfway point of my career, maybe 15 years into it, that I decided that, you know, I aspired to be a global CIO. I didn't set my sights on any particular company or industry, but I did aspire to to want to become a global CIO. And, and, and did that, uh, as you got into the CIO or as it was, was it formalized, did that change kind of your perspective on you know, the importance of the digital, you know, did you see the digital age coming and were you trying to lead turn it or, or were you just kind of at, uh, at the right place as it, it came about, you know, what was your, did, did you see it coming or were you taking advantage of the wave that was behind it? Yeah. I mean, hard to say if I saw it coming. I mean, I've been around long enough that I've survived the era of mainframe to the era of the invention of the PC, to the era of the internet, to the cell phone, um, to distributed computing, to cloud computing. You know, I've, I've been through it all. I wouldn't say that I was had a crystal ball and was outstanding at looking at what was coming next. But what I did find I was good at was whatever did come next, um, I did have a knack for quickly being able to grab hold of it and think about how it could be used to help companies or help various industries? And then how do you start the transformation with whatever that new technology was at the time in my career? When I think CIO, there are two exciting aspects that come to mind for me. And I'm curious to hear if you're drawn to one one more than the other, or maybe it's both. But 
One is modernization, as you talked about, just the evolution of digital networks and infrastructure. Modernization, I think, is is huge. And then also the security aspects, too. So over your career, seeing the importance of cybersecurity launch and grow. Do you have any thoughts about either of those? And if you're drawn to one more than the other? Yeah, I think what I was drawn more towards was companies that were trying to figure out when the advent of whatever the new technology was, how they needed to transform and how to be able to embrace it. Um, you know, along the way, you know, I remember my first cybersecurity incident, which was a virus way back when I was at Wackel International back in the you know early 1990s. Um, and at that time, that was a novel, unique problem, uh, which we kind of addressed in a very curiosity sort of way. But I don't think back then the way my brain was wired was thinking about it as, well, I'm starting to see something that's going to become, you know, a mainstay problem in the corporate world. It wasn't until probably several years later that, like many people, I woke up to the fact that, you know, cybersecurity was a advent. It actually was a whole new industry when I was uh, growing up. I would say early on there was such a thing as the cyber industry. There was definitely no CISA. Um, that didn't probably come until the late 90s when I first saw the advent of that. So I would say I was more drawn to companies that were trying to figure out how to use whatever the new technology was and how it was going to help transform their company. Awesome. Well, on, on the security note, but also this idea of transform transformation or implementation here, I'm curious, what what drew you to the public sector? How did you end up at DOD? Can you tell our listeners yeah. that story? You know, I, I wish I could tell you, Lauren, that it was part of my master career plan to finish up my career in government. Uh, you know, we can talk later on about why was I never intersected with government. But no, I had actually retired uh, from J.P. Morgan and got a call in what would have been in February of 2018 from the White House um, asking me if I would consider coming out of retirement to head up technology for the Department of Defense. But prior to that, um, I would say that I had spent a lot of time thinking about ending my career or at any point of my career entering government service. Why do you think that is, Dana? Why do you think, you know, successful folks in, you know, why is there still this chasm between, you know, you can be successful in industry and then, you, you know, you may interact with government folks or you can be successful in government and you may interact with industry folks, but there doesn't seem to be a, you know, a, a, a easy cross-pollination path, nor is it even in uh, people's minds that the possibilities out there. Yeah, I think I think Hondo, you've you've hit upon. I've actually spent some time reflecting on this. So let's if you go back to at least this is this is my story, but I suspect it applies to a lot of people in our, you know, information technology profession. Uh, I graduate, getting ready to graduate from high school. I meet with the typical high school counselor. And you are starting to think about what a career might look like. But you're really thinking about what college you want to get to. Um, so then I end up in college. And by the time you're in your junior year, you're starting to interview. I knew I wanted to go into the technology industry by the time I was a junior in college. But I never came across anybody that had served in government. Um, you know, my father was in the Navy, uh, but 
that I was so young at the time that that occurred that I had no relationship to thinking about spending time in the military. So then I get my first job out of college. And then we all know two, three years after you get that first job, now you're going to get your first promotion. Then you eventually get that first phone call from a recruiter to go someplace else. Nowhere along that entire path, Hondo, did I come across or intersect with anybody in government. So the issue is there's no, there's no natural way that people who start the career on the private sector side intersect with the government side unless they happen to know a family member, a relative, or they're contacted. Um, you know, sadly to say, but a hand on heart, I would not have been in the government if it wasn't for the fact that they reached out to me towards the end of my career. But it wasn't something I thought about along the way. And I think sadly, the problem is our society is not set up well for government service to intersect with people that, you know, kind of grow up their career in the private sector. Yeah, it's almost it's almost designed so it's not to be. Don't you know the design not to have a revolving door? You know, I've often talked about you know we should have more of a revolving door than 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 not because it adds so much. What would you say you got out of your government time that either surprised you or wish you would have known in the twenty year ago, Dana? That's out there somewhere, um, you know, exposed now to potentially this opportunity. Um, you know, this is going to maybe sound a little cheesy. But what I discovered about myself is I had a real patriotic streak in me. Um, once I was in working with the men and women that are protecting our country every day, I was, became very passionate about service and about helping the country. But honestly, Hondo, it wasn't something that I would say hand on heart that I thought about until once I was in the middle of it and you just want to give it your all. I mean, once you are in and you are helping your country, uh, some people will say, well, isn't it bureaucratic? Isn't it frustrating? And I say, of course, it's all that. But it's also one of the most rewarding things you could ever, ever do in your career. Um, and I'm super glad I did it. I'd do it all over again if I was asked to. But I have to admit, it's not something I thought about. I never thought about myself as being patriotic. Um, until I found myself in the middle of the job and you suddenly feel like, God, it's great. It's so proud to be an American. I know that sounds a little silly, but once I was in the Pentagon working every day, I felt really, really proud about doing it. That's awesome. And I love your point about just a lack of network intersections between the private sector and public sector. I think it's something that um, to maintain a robust defense industrial base or really industrial base writ large. It's something we've got to fix. And there's really an appetite to serve because of the patriotic approach or um, really strong feelings that you mentioned. Um, I want to go back, Dana, to this pivot and talk about some of the challenges. Like what were the hardest parts? Once you decided you were going to sign up, what was it like? And um, especially some of those challenges. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and to say the least, there were a few daunting challenges. I mean, you have to realize, by the time I'm retiring from J.P. Morgan, I was, what, 38 years into my career, expert in, in you know, international business, 
corporate business. But when you enter government, A, I knew nothing about how government worked, let alone how the DOD worked, let alone how the organism called the Pentagon worked. And so when you show up on your first day, you, you know, remember back when we were all in like junior high and we took our social studies course on how government in America works. So you learned about the branches of government, you learned about bills and Congress and all that. I felt like I was on a steroids, a social studies course. No one had told me how does authorization work? How does appropriation work? How do committees work? How do hearings work? How do you interface with Congress? Um, I had no experience in any of that. Um, so it was less for me about how to figure out how to get in and learn the technology of the DOD. It was more the broader issues of not understanding how to make the mechanism of government work. I'll just give you a small example. So you know, I joined the DOD, and like any job I've ever done, the first thing I want to do is to step back and say, well, how are we spending our money? And could we redirect some funds to some of the new large digital transformation initiatives? And when I made the comment one day, I said, well, you know, we got 40-some billion dollars we're spending inside the DOD on technology. Surely we can carve out a billion of it to redirect. You know, I got these horrified looks from everybody who was like, you can't redirect money, Dana. You know, that money has all been authorized. It's been appropriated. It's been legislated. Um, and for me, that was a foreign concept. Because up to that point in my career, you walk into a new company, you see wasteful spend, or you see where it should be spent differently, and you repivot. You know, but you, you, you change your, your mind and go a different direction. So that was the real wake-up. Just that one example of trying to move money around in government was a fascinating undertaking. And what about the flip side? So you talk about some of the challenges in the government role. What was your take on the private sector once you were in? Like any thoughts on how the private sector could be better partners in this tricky dynamic? Yeah. Um, you know, so when I was on the private sector side and I would touch government for whatever reasons. Maybe it was primarily in the cyberspace, as you can imagine, given I worked in oil and gas, automotive, and uh, financial services. I think on the private sector side, we have a tendency to think in terms of government being slow, bureaucratic, maybe at times not the most capable people in roles. Um, and so we discount want to spend the appropriate time to work with government. It becomes only if necessary, so to speak, as a proactive reach out. Now, that's not to say that obviously these companies I work for, they all had government affairs offices. But if you weren't in the government affairs part of the company you worked for, you just didn't, you know, as I like to say earlier, you just don't intersect a whole lot. And when you did, you approached it with a great deal of skepticism. And I don't think, even looking back on it, that's not healthy, that's not beneficial, and it's not going to move the, you know, the, the country forward. Um, do I have a solution for what has to change? I think we touched upon it a little bit. If we can get more people from the private sector to do a stent, whatever that stent looks like, 
in government just so they can appreciate how things work, why things are done the way they're done. I think a lot of it, the misunderstanding of this thing we call bureaucracy is that, you know, I simply didn't understand why things happen the way they happen in government until I found myself in the middle of it. Then all of a sudden you have this aha moment that says, okay, I, I get it. I understand why the government needs to do the approaches it takes. But if you don't have that experience, you almost want to run away from it versus run towards it. So, Dana, I mean, you've got this really unique perspective of large corporate organizations, large government organizations. How would you compare and contrast kind of the digital competence organizationally of, you know, pick your large industrial partner versus a large government? And what are the unique challenges, you know, as you tried to take on modernizing, you know, all of these legacy DOD systems? You know, what, what were the unique challenges that government faced? You talked a little bit about having, you know, stakeholders on the Hill, but I'm sure there's others. How would, how would you kind of compare and contrast the, some of the challenges you see in that IT modernization space? You know, the biggest one, I, I think there's two that immediately come to mind. The budgeting process is a protracted, multi-year process, and your ability to influence it in the near term is somewhat limited, Hondo. Uh, you know, when I walked into the DOD, which would have been early 2018, that budget year was already done, and 2019 was close to being locked down. And if you're going to do a large digital transformation program, um, unless you can miraculously go get brand new dollars, what you're really trying to do is take your existing budget and repivot it towards digital modernization. That is very hard to do in government, a lot easier to do in the private sector. Uh, you know, you go to your board, you go to your CEO, your CFO, you give them the business case about why you need to redirect, it's done. You know, in government, I had to go meet with members, staff, members of the various committees, uh, to meet with the individual senators, um, even inside the mechanisms of the Pentagon trying to redirect money. So that would be one. I'd say budget makes near-term digital transformation challenging at best. Two would be the entire acquisition process. Um, so I remember when we started up the AI Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, uh, you know, once I could get funding, then it was, well, now you have to start the acquisition process to go out and find the appropriate partners you want to work with. Um, and, the, and the process is not set up for speed. It, it's set up for thoroughness. It's set up for fairness. It's set up for, to quote unquote, maximize every taxpayer dollar. Um, but we have to understand that moving with speed and digital modernization and then taking advantage of how do you embrace the acquisition process is a contradiction. Acquisition process does not equal speed. I'm not trying to be critical of the acquisition process. I'm just trying to be very pragmatic about the fact that it's set up to be a very long, drawn-out process. And even if you think you've gotten through it, then there's protest. And sometimes you have to go back and redo things. Um, personally, I think the government can learn about 
acquisition from the private sector and still maintain what I would call the spirit of what they were intentionally trying to do when they put the acquisition process in place. And that is a fair and open competition that gets the best result for the government taxpayer. Yeah, I think you make a really important point that, you know, we tend in big bureaucracies trying to treat everything the same because, you know, we love standardization because then we believe we can train people to the standard. Uh, But buying uh, an aircraft carrier and buying a piece of IT equipment should not be the same. Um, Yet we try and go there. And, And I do like your idea of learning from the private sector that that there are better ways to do these uh, these kinds of things. You know, you, you, it's a really interesting point you make about aircraft carrier versus buying a piece of a software. I mean, let's let's think about before the digital age came about. You know, it was a very hard, you know, hardware asset driven acquisition process inside the DoD. You know, multi year acquisition to buy a sub, a plane, an aircraft carrier. Um, and I think those processes carry over as digital transformation started to occur across the DOD and actually not just the DOD, all parts of government for that matter. And I don't think it's caught up, which is why I think a lot of young companies struggle when they come into the DOD because they see themselves selling a very purposeful, unique software to solve a very specific problem, and yet they can get sometimes tossed into that large acquisition hardware mindset process. And you can see where the divide can start to occur between the private sector and government. Well, it's really cool sitting here with both of you. And something that comes to mind to me is COVID. You're both in significant leadership positions with regards to um, IT transformation and and Honda on the acquisition side. What happened during COVID? Did it help us move in the right direction or any stories you can tell our listeners there? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd love to hear, Hondo, your your views on it. Mine was, um, you know, the old expression about uh, when you have a crisis, take advantage of it. Um, You know, the, the daunting task that I got asked was, hey, we may have to move upwards of a million people out of their normal work environment and have them work from home. Um, And, you know, let's face it, we were not set up. I mean, the DOD is not set up for people to work from home. Um, It's set up for people to come into the bases, come into the Pentagon, wherever that might be. Uh, So it was truly extraordinary to think that in less than about two and a half months, we had put in place a collaboration tool and solution that allowed over a million people to work from home. Now think about that. If I had gone into the joint staff, the secretaries of the various services, the acquisition heads and said, I've got a solution that will allow us to have over a million people inside the DOD work from home in a secure way and we'll have everybody onboarded using the common solution in under 60 to 75 days, I never would have gotten to the first page of the PowerPoint chart. People would have thought this guy has lost the plot and they probably would have been out looking for a new CIO. But that's exactly what we did. Um, 
everybody stepped up. The security team stepped up. They could work in a different way. The acquisition team stepped up. The whole machinery, including Congress, everybody knew that we were facing a real crisis and that we weren't going to be able to use the normal methods, techniques, and practices. Um, and so for me, that was a real litmus test. The government can move really darn fast and do some extraordinary things when their backs are against the wall. Yeah, I would. I mean, again, what you did, Dana, and the team was was amazing. I What comes to mind is three things, right? When you can put it in the context of a mission outcome, then the bureaucracy, you know, and everybody agrees we need to achieve this outcome. You know, that's really important. Uh, the second piece is talent. And, you know, Dana, one of the things you did was recruit other versions of you. I had a great pleasure of working with Aaron Weiss in the Navy, uh, you know, and Aaron and I teamed up. Um, and so I do think, you know, besides the examples of what's possible, it's also a, a good litmus test on what talent and bringing, you know, cross, cross fertilizing talent allows an organization to do. Uh, and the trick is, how do we do that as a normal course of business, not just as a crisis course of business? You know, one of the, I think, unique challenges, I'd like your opinion a little bit on, Dana, is, you know, at least in the Navy, I think we had, when I got there, 261 different uh, unclassified networks and, you know, probably double out if we counted everything else. We had all this, all these anchors we were dragging, which made modernization really, really hard because, you know, to cyber certify it, it just became, um, you know, just overly complex. Do you think we've done a good enough job of, you know, killing off all of these old legacy workaround systems, or is there still more work to go there if, if the DOD is really going to get on a high iteration speed, you know, modernize in place kind of mindset? Yeah, I mean, Hondo, simply put, we have a long ways to go still. Um, there, there's still a lot of legacy. I think that legacy is not only, I mean, we tend to think in terms of the application, the end user, the person of service use, but it's hardware, it's networks, um, it's everything. I think the big aha for me there in trying to solve for that problem is it's not like you go to work with someone in the Navy that has the single authority to tell everybody across the Navy we're now going to all do X. It gets all the way down to the individual, you know, guy who's the captain of a ship who actually has the, you know, ultimate authority and responsibility for the integrity and the readiness of that piece of equipment. And that's no different than an army base. It's no different than planes in the air force. Uh, and so you see where I'm going with this is that the DOD's designed, and this is one of the great things about the DOD, it's designed to give responsibility down to the lowest level and allow them to have the autonomy and the authority to do the mission that needs to be done. The downside of that is you're now dealing with the lowest common denominator and trying to solve for any legacy issue. You're down to the individual base. You're down to the individual ship. And that is the complexity that has to be solved for. You don't want to lose the richness of that autonomy and authority we've given folks. But at the same time, we're never going to move with speed if we keep it down at the lowest common denominator. I'm going to go back to something Hondo talked about, which was talent and workforce, um, because these initiatives that you, you speak of, Dana, wouldn't 
be done without your team and, and people. And, and you talked about your admiration for those serving. But on our show, we talk about how you can serve both in and out of government. What were your what was your take as you were trying to recruit folks? Did you see this appetite towards service or the patriotism that you talked about? Or how can we drive more interest in terms of talent to these issues, both in and out of government? Yeah, I mean, uh, the best way to answer this question is, I think, through an example. Um, so the best way I found that we could attract young people that were their senior year in college or now getting ready to graduate is to bring them in, not so much in an interim, but bring them in for a week through a series of introductory programs where they can learn the DOD. So we did this in the cyberspace where we bring kids out of some of the top cyber universities, have them spend some time with my organization, a couple of the services in the cyberspace, have them go over and spend a day at U.S. Cyber Command, NSA, and my goodness, by the time you got to that Friday, they're sitting there going, where do I sign up? Because the mission and what they got exposed to was so cool, so compelling, something they had never seen or even thought that they could do. Um, and so one of the things that I think all agencies of government have that corporate America can never solve for is the mission. And all you have to do is better educate and spend some time with this amazing young cadre of talent that's coming out of schools. And there is a wake up that occurs inside of them. I saw it time and time again where they suddenly said, I want to spend some time serving the country. We have to figure out a way to do that at scale, Lauren, across all agencies. I am absolutely convinced that we can get this young talent in. We won't keep it. So I'm not, I'm not going to be naive enough to say that we're going to keep them four, five, six years, but maybe that's okay. You know, maybe if they rotate and need to go back into the corporate world because it may be for financial reasons or for whatever, that's okay. But I think we're missing a trick here where we're not exposing young talent enough about the mission of what the various agencies of government, in this case, the DOD do. And boy, you'd see them light up in a conference room once they understood, I can actually do that for a living? Now, that's way too cool. Where do I sign up? Dana, so you've, uh, you know, you and I are both now uh, doing some fun stuff back on the outside, uh, you know, seeing a bunch of, you know, this incredible kind of uh, ecosystem of startups and folks trying to scale and, and, and I do think a lot of folks seeing both the business opportunities and the service opportunities of working with uh, the government and DOD in the way they maybe had in five or seven years ago before Ukraine and before COVID and before uh, now the Israel-Hamas um, conflict. What is What recommendations would you give to a startup thinking about wanting to work with the DOD? You've talked a little bit about have some humility and learn learn the real problems before offering solutions. But I'm sure there's other advice, you know, yeah. you're giving folks, you know, when they think they want to do work with the DOD. Could you share some of that with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I've got some fairly strong views on this topic because I guess I saw young companies when I was inside the DOD failing to heed the advice I'm about to give. 
and now today back on the outside helping young companies. Um, I can see it repeating itself. I think the first one is um, spend more time understanding the mission of who you're going in to see, their problems, and don't be, don't feel this urgency. You have to push your agenda and your product early on. So I'll give you perfect examples. I can't tell you how many young companies would come in to see me when I was at the DOD. And about only 10% of them Honda would actually take the time and say, Mr. DC, let me tell you the problem set I'm told you're trying to solve for. Let me tell you about the digital transformation that you're trying to put in place and where we fit into that. All too often, young companies were wanting to come in because they'd only get a 30-minute slot and they want to push their product and their services as hard as they can on you to try to make an impression. So that's problem number one. Two is, you know this, Honda, the DOD could just suck you up. I mean, once you have a viable solution and starting to get some legs, um, if multiple services come after you, we're going we're gonna to crush you as a young company. Um, and so I think the second thing is learn how to say no to the DOD. And that is incredibly hard, especially if you're a young company and you have, you know, you, you're your venture backed, you have equity backed firm. And you're going to go tell your board, I've just said no to a potential customer in the DOD. That's hard. But if you don't say no, you're going to get diluted. And then you're not going to end up being successful. I think the third one is young companies need to spend more time with their boards, educating them on how long the acquisition process is going to be. Now, the DOD needs to help this. We need to help young companies and give them a realistic time frame from the point that they're going to get to be able to bring a product in, test it, evaluate it, till the time it comes out the other end and you actually see a purchase order. You know, that could be years, literally. And I think part of the problem is the investors of these young companies don't understand the cycle of government. And so that breaks down. And I think the last one is, don't overrepresent yourself. Um, you know, when a young company would come in and see me and they'd say, well, we're in the Department of the Navy. Well, by the time you were done and you'd actually kind of pull that string, they were in helping one small base somewhere in the U.S., but they gave you the impression you're doing something across the end. I mean, it's disingenuous. You lose credibility. Um and when you're a young company, you're, you're so desperately trying to create credibility as fast as you can. So, you know, don't, you know, don't hit your own self goals, so to speak. Just be thoughtful about those things. Wow. So much great advice there, Dana. Thank you so much for coming on the show to share uh, not only that advice with entrepreneurs who are looking to support the national security communities, but to everyone looking to serve or maybe pivot from the private sector to government, sharing your story, I think, inspires so many and also helps folks realize it's possible. Um, so thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to share that on today's show, um, Dana, and, and for everything that you've done in, in that DOD position. Lauren Honda, thank you very much for uh, thinking about me, giving you a chance to tell my story today. You've been listening to Building the Base. 
a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.